Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. were to boil down all of the religions in the world, you would find that there are essentially only two ways they teach that you can be justified or declared righteous before God. Remember, to be justified is to be declared righteous, it's to be saved, to be right before God. And the first and most popular popular way that men teach you can be justified before God is by treating it like an installment plan. It's something that, you know, over the course of your life, through your religious works and your good works, you make installments on your justification, installments or payments on that plan. It's sort of like a loan, just here and there, little by little, I pay pay for my justification through my works, so at the end of my life, I'll, I'll, I'll be in the clear, I'll be right with God. And this way treats justification like a process. It's something you earn through your self-righteous works. And, and this is what most men believe, and it's what most religious men teach. For example, a recent poll by Pew Research said that 77% of Americans believe you can contribute your own efforts to your personal salvation. That's over three-quarters of people out there. Fifty-two percent believe you believe that good deeds can help earn them a spot in heaven. Mormonism is a works-based system. The Book of Mormon says, "For we know that it is by grace that we are saved, after all that we can do." Not a good definition of grace, is it? Roman Catholicism believes that salvation is secured through faith plus good works as channeled through the institution of the Roman Catholic Church. That's what I grew up with. Just about every time you see the word justification in their catechism, and I worked my way through it this week, every time, just about every time you see justification, it says, and it says you're justified by faith and baptism. Faith and baptism. And that's just the start. So if you want to be saved, you've got to have faith, you have to be baptized, and then that's not a once and for all justification. Beyond that, you have to perform the sacraments to stay justified. You have to go through the, you know, the various sacraments like communion and reconciliation and indulgences, maybe pray the rosary. There's a, there's a list of things that you've got to keep it up. You have to keep up. Because if you sin, you basically pull the plug on your justification and it goes back down and you've got to work your way back up again. So it's a religious treadmill. Religions like Buddhism and Hinduism are replete with religious ceremonies and rituals and practices uh, that, where people are trying to connect with the divine or the divine nature. It's different prayers and different religious works 
It's basically you, you save yourself as you live a devoted life and you meditate and you practice self-control and, and do good works. And then Islam. Islam teaches that a man must pay for his own sins by following the five pillars of faith. If a Muslim is to escape Allah's judgment, they have to recite the shahada. They have to pray prescribed prayers daily. They have to practice almsgiving, tithing, fast, and make a pilgrimage to Mecca sometime in their lifetime. Uh, Some of the extremists like ISIS and Hamas add a sixth pillar that we've witnessed recently called jihad, where they kill non-Muslims in holy war for Allah's sake. And then lastly, among what men teach about how to be saved, how to be justified, some evangelicals today, some churches in the name of Christianity are going to tell you you have to clean up your life before you get saved. You have to be a good person. You have to be a good moral person. You got to measure up. You got to keep the Ten Commandments, keep the law, dedicate your life to Him somehow, etc. So they just invent all of these different conditions. Man is very creative and imaginative at coming up with conditions for salvation, for justification. But the second way teaches justification is more like a one-time purchase. It's a one-time act of God. You don't, you don't take out a loan that you slowly pay off. It's quite the opposite. You receive it as a one-time gift of God. Justification is a one-time act of God's grace and not a process. And that thus the righteousness is not your own. It's a perfect righteousness from God that satisfies a perfect and holy God. So, I'll tell you, authentic Christianity is the only one that teaches the second way. That it's a one-time gift of God's grace the moment you believe. But the first way is what men teach. The second way is what Scripture teaches. The first way being a process that men teach. The second way being an act And that's what Scripture teaches. And I trust you're here this morning. You're in a Bible church, a Berean church, Acts 17.11 type of church, because you want to know not what men teach, but what Scripture teaches, right? You want to know what this says, I hope. I hope this is why you're here. Not to hear me speak, necessarily, but to hear what God says in His holy and inspired Word. So, I don't know about you, but I do not want to rest my eternal destiny, heaven or hell, based on what a man says. Not that God can't use that man to reveal truth, but I want to base my salvation, my justification on what God has said in His Word. So, Let's dig into the scriptures and see what he has to say about it. Last time we were in Romans, uh, chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, Paul said that the doctrine of justification by faith, this most important doctrine regarding our eternal destiny, is the doctrine that, that he teaches is opposed to all the imaginations of religious men out there who teach that you can work for it. And what he teaches, justification by faith, not by works, is nothing new. 
It didn't come out of left field unannounced. It, 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 he says it was witnessed by the law and the prophets, and that's a reference to the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And he's going to prove today from the law and the prophets that this is true, that what he says is true. He's going to illustrate justification by faith through what the scriptures say about the life of Abraham. So let's look at, look at this in verses 1 through 8 first. Uh, we'll see Abraham justified by faith, not by works. Uh, let's look at the first three verses of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So why does Paul, to illustrate justification by faith, go back to Abraham? Why go back to Abraham? Because Abraham lived 2,000 years before Paul wrote this letter. 2,000 BC, he lived 600 years before the law was ever given. Moses wouldn't be born for several hundred more years, which tells you he couldn't have been justified by keeping the law. It wasn't even a thing. So how was he justified? God chose Abraham and he made a promise with him, which Ty shared with us last week. Genesis chapter 12, he's the first Jew. His descendants became known as the Jewish people. So he's arguably the most important individual for the Jewish people. Jews understood that whatever Paul says about justification, it must make sense of God's promise to Abraham. And what basically it has to make sense of the Bible as a whole. And it has to stand in continuity with that promise to Abraham. And so Abraham, in the Jews' minds was viewed as the prime example of someone who was righteous. I mean, if anyone deserved to be worthy of salvation by their righteousness, it was Abraham, the father of their faith. 100 years before Christ, a Jewish writing jubilee said, for Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. Is that true? Or do we have accounts in Genesis where he clearly lied? And well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So if we were to take time to study the Jewish writings right around the time before Christ came, they, you would see, we would see that they made Abraham to be almost an infallible individual. I mean, this guy was perfectly righteous, and that's why God chose him, and that's why he, he, sh he should be saved on, based on his own righteousness. I mean, it, he was just the leading candidate. He is the leading candidate of, of someone whom the Jews considered worthy of salvation. I mean, if anybody deserved heaven on their own righteous deeds, it was, it was God's man Abraham. And... If righteous man of faith Abraham couldn't be saved by his own efforts, well, then who could? Nobody. Because he was, you know, the pinnacle of faith and righteousness. 
So if he can't be good enough, then obviously no one else could. And that's exactly the point that Paul is making today. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, by what he did in obedience to God, well, then he has something to boast about. Verse 2. If Abraham's saved by works, then logically he can boast, right? He can say, look what I did. Look how righteous I am. I got here to heaven because of my own righteous religious works. If we could be saved by works, then we would for all of eternity join the heavenly chorus of boasting about our own salvation. I mean, think about it. Who gets the glory if you can be good enough? If you earn your own salvation, you get the glory for that. You can boast about you and what you did. And I don't really want heaven to be like that. I don't know about you. We all just sit around and boast about each other, boast about ourselves. And we're all going to get to heaven and we're going to look back and say, we got here because of God's grace. But as Paul mentioned in Chapter 3, verse 27, the principle of justification by faith excludes boasting. It excludes it. It's excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of of faith. And so no one can ever be righteous enough before a perfectly righteous God. And so that's why Paul just immediately nullifies the thought that anyone, even Abraham, could be justified by his works. He says he has something to boast about, but not before God. I mean, he just cuts it off right then and there. Not before God. He nullifies that thought. The entire premise of a works-based installment plan justification is just entirely rejected. You can work all your life to pay off your sin debt before God, and it's still never going to be enough. You have to have a perfect righteousness to pay off that debt. And since the Jews of Paul's day looked to Abraham as a faith, works, salvation type, they joined faith with works, kind of like the Roman Catholic Church does. Uh, This would have been extremely controversial, just as controversial as it is today. They all believed faith plus works gets you to heaven just like the Roman Catholic Church teaches today and a lot of other churches. It's really controversial, isn't it? But we have to talk about it because it regards your eternal destiny. How are we saved? And so Paul is turning their view of Abraham and their doctrine of justification on its head. This is why the Reformation had to happen 500 years ago, right? But in verse 3, he asks a question we should all ask. He asks, what does the Scripture say? Don't you... Love that? That stood out to me this whole week. What does the Scripture say, Paul says? We should all ask that question because that you should underline that phrase in your Bible. What does the Scripture say? Highlight it or something. Because it doesn't matter what men say about this, does it? What matters is what God says in His authoritative Word. My job is just to present to you what the Scriptures say. Your job is to filter what I say through the Scriptures. 
So don't take my word for it. Get my challenge and my encouragement to you guys this morning, one of them anyway, is that you make sure you're getting in the word of God for yourself and you get to know this thing. Like develop a working knowledge of this thing. So you can use it. You can, you can filter what you're hearing from the world and from people and men. You filter what they say through this. Because this is our authority. This is our, 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 uh, our guide, our, our standard for faith and for practice. And the sad reality is that in churches today, many churches are becoming biblically illiterate. They don't know their Bibles. And that's a dangerous place to be in a world that's filled with religious teachings of men. Because you're, you're open to heresies. You're open to false gospels because you don't know what the false gospel is. Biblical illiteracy produces religious men who preach a false gospel you don't know what's true, how are you going to know what's false? And so this is, this is how you end up with three-quarters of Americans thinking they're going to be justified by works. Uh, a teaching that's contrary to the gospel and contrary, uh, just basically every, everything the Bible teaches about justification. From Genesis to Revelation. And guys, I would encourage you, please read this thing. It looks big. I know this one's bigger than average because it's a study Bible. But I've read through this several times, dozens of times. I lost count. It's not that hard. It looks like a lot, but it's not. Just read three chapters a day. You'll get through the whole Bible in a year. You'll be glad you did. But if Abraham was justified by works, wasn't justified by works, how then was he justified? What does the scripture say? Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he, Abraham simply believed. And in that moment, when God perceived that faith, he was credited with righteousness. He was given righteousness in that moment. Over and done. An act of God's grace. But let's break that verse down a little bit. This is one of the most significant verses in the entire Bible. Genesis 15, 6. This is where we see the word believe used for the first time in the Bible. And 150 times, the Bible says, salvation is through believing. It's through faith. Faith, believing, trusting. Those are interchangeable words. But to believe is to trust in, right? It's to say amen, to something, right? You believe it, you trust it, you have faith in it, you're going to rest in it. And what did Abraham believe? Well, he believed that what God told him was true, the promise that God had made to him. Now, turn to Genesis 15 with me, Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. You'll remember in Genesis 12 that God chose Abraham, and he said, I'm going I'm to bless you, I'm going to give you land and seed, right, descendancy, Dynasty and, and blessing, land, seed, and blessing. And he would, he would possess the land, and a great nation would come from him, including blessings for the whole world through the Messiah, Christ Jesus. So that was the promise in Genesis chapter 12. And then you get to Genesis chapter 15, and God comes to Abraham again. 
and he reassures him of his promise to him years earlier, and then he ratifies that with him in a covenant. Genesis 15, 1 through 6 says this, Don't fear, Abraham, for I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham also said, Since you have given me no son, one who has been born in my house is my heir. And then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look to the heavens and count the stars, and if you're able, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then he believed in the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So here's Abraham, 84 years old, has the promise of God to be a great nation. A great nation is going to come from him, through him, including the Savior. But he has no children. And so he thinks that this promise is going to be fulfilled through one of his household servants named Eliezer from Damascus. And so God says, Abraham, let me take you for a walk, basically. Let's step outside and look up at the stars. And God says, count the stars if you're able. And first thing I did when I got up this morning and walked out of the house, I looked up at the stars. And I couldn't count them either. There's no way. Even with all of our technology today, the telescopes and all of that, we still cannot count the stars. They're innumerable. God says, so your descendants are going to be. So shall your descendants be. They're going to be like the stars. You won't be able to count them. And Abraham said, amen in his heart. I believe that. I'm 84 years old. There's no way I should be having any kids. But, amen. I believe it. He considered God's promise wholly reliable. He had faith in it. And God responded to his faith in that moment by crediting it to him as righteousness. God said, you are righteous before me. Justified. And notice what God didn't do. God didn't say, now Abraham, that's a good start. But if you really want to be justified more, if there's such a thing, or if you really don't want to lose your justification, well, then you're going to have to get circumcised, okay? You're going to have to get baptized. You're going to have to go to synagogue every week. You're going to have to take communion, maybe light some candles, give some money and some time to the church, the synagogue. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you're going to have to get confirmed. I don't know. We could go on, right? It's never ending. But God didn't do that. God just declared him righteous. It was a declaration, just like when the judge says innocent, and he drops the gavel. That's the way justification works. It's not, well, we'll see if you're justified or not over the course of your life. It doesn't work that way in a court. It doesn't work that way in God's court. You are declared righteous, and you go free 
because he paid it for you, paid for your sins for you. And so this was an immediate and lasting act of his grace when God justified Abraham. He was reckoned righteous. He deposited, credited righteousness in his debt account. He he paid for it. And this is also the first use of the word credit in the Bible, Genesis 15, 6, credit. Just think debit and credit, right? He credited, positive, reckoned, counted, or imputed, right, righteousness to him. It's the Greek word logizomai. It's used 11 times in this chapter, so we better get familiar with it. And it's an accounting term that in the New Testament times, in the first century, was used, it's a word used for keeping records involving debits and credits. And it means to put on someone's account in a judicial or financial setting. And so when Abraham believed God, his debit account of sin was wiped clean. God paid for it. He paid it off at once, and he paid it off in full. Testelestai is what Jesus said on the cross. Remember that? His last words, testelestai, paid in full. It was another accounting term. He paid for our sins. He believed God. Abraham did, and God forgave his debt as a gift in that moment. So in the New Testament, don't we see the same thing? Immediate act of justification for people who believe. In Acts chapter 10, on one occasion, Peter is preaching and it says, while he was still speaking these words, while he was preaching to uncircumcised Gentiles, it says, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. So, While Peter's preaching, they hear the gospel message that Christ died for their sins. They believe the message. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit baptizes them. This Holy Spirit does his work of adoption and calls them children of God. And and they're saved and sealed. Paul teaches this truth in the New Testament in Ephesians 1, verse 13. He says, you also, after listening... Let me rewind a little bit. You remember that Acts chapter 10 moment, what happened? Peter was preaching. They believe. They're baptized by the Spirit. And then what? After that, they are baptized in water because they had already been saved. So the water baptism takes place after the Spirit's baptism. So Ephesians 1.13 says, You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Saved and sealed by the Spirit at the moment you believe. Exercise faith. There's no works involved in it at all. Romans chapter 4 verse 4 continues. And guys, this is, this is unmistakably clear and concrete. Listen to this. Now to the one who, who works... His wages are not credited as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So, how are we justified? By faith. How are we not justified? By works. It's so clear, isn't it? So concrete. 
If you have an employer and, and you, you put in so many hours per week and, and he gives you a paycheck for your work, you don't go up to him afterwards and say, wow, boss, you're, you're so kind. Thank you so much. Why are you being so sweet to me? And if you do that, he's going to probably give you a drug test. He's going to say, what kind of drugs are you on? Right? You've worked for it. You've earned it. This is my obligation to repay you for the work that you've done. Well, that's what Paul's saying here. If you could work for salvation, it wouldn't be a gift anymore. It would be something you earned. And we all know that's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. It must be a gift because you can never pay off the sins, the sin debt that you owe God. If you could... Jesus, like I say, I say this all the time, if you could pay for your own sins, then why did Jesus need to come and die on the cross? It wouldn't make any sense. So Paul says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And that statement right there, justifies the ungodly. Had <laughs> That'll send chills down the religious moralist's spine. Could God save someone ungodly? There's no other kind of people to save, is there? We're all ungodly. And me trying, you trying to be godly will not get us saved. Moralism Right? Isn't that, isn't that legalism? Trying to be good enough? Trying to be righteous enough? You'll never be godly enough. You do not have to clean up your life first in order to be saved. It just doesn't work that way. And that's why we tell people to come as they are. You cannot do a big... Like you hear it all the time, but... Well, you get, clean up your life and then come. Is that the gospel? We're not denying repentance is a necessary thing, but we're saying you're saved by grace through faith. The Holy Spirit baptizes you, gives you the power to then be sanctified. Justification before sanctification. You come through faith, receiving freely the gift of justification. And so having proved justification by faith from the law section of the Old Testament, Paul now turns to the prophets section of the Old Testament. He banks off the word uh, credit or reckon. He's already used that word credit or reckon, and now he takes us to Psalm 32 like a good Jewish exegete where, he, where that, use, that word is used again. So verse 6, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So David's words from Psalm 32, Paul uses them to confirm his teaching that a man can have his account of sins forgiven by God. King David says our lawless deeds, plural, and our sins, plural, can be forgiven and covered by God. He won't take them into account. He won't reckon them against us. 
I don't know if you've ever heard that message before. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard that. That right there is just a beautiful truth. You can have all of your sins and lawless deeds forgiven through faith in Christ. You trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's what he calls the blessing here. That's God's blessing. Both David and Abraham, we know they were sinners. Abraham lied in Egypt. David committed adultery and he murdered a man, his, that woman's white husband. And yet, here they are, forgiven. Records cleared, slate wiped clean because of God's grace. And then Paul takes it further because what about circumcision? Many Jews taught, again, justification plus works. They taught grace that justifies, get this, grace comes through good works or religious works. That's what sacraments are in the Roman Catholic Church. You take the sacrament, grace comes through that sacrament. So you have to do the work to get the grace. It's a different definition of grace. So what about circumcision? What most people do with baptism, they did with circumcision. So let's see Abraham justified by faith before works now in verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So after God had declared Abraham righteous, God required circumcision for all of his descendants. Declared righteous, chapter 15, Genesis. Circumcised, Genesis chapter 17. Which one comes first? 15 or 17? Right, 15. And so he was declared righteous way before he was circumcised. And this circumcision, this was to be a constant reminder of God's covenant with Abraham's descendants. As I mentioned in our study of Romans chapter 3, during the inter intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament, this, this rite or this ritual had taken on way more significance than God ever intended. Because of persecution, because of the dispersion of the Jews throughout the world, this tangible symbol of the Jewish faith had become a work that they required for salvation. Some rabbis taught, no circumcised man will be lost. A Jewish commentary on Genesis said, Abraham will sit at the entrance to Gehenna, or hell, and permit no uncircumcised Israelite or no circumcised Israelite to descend therein. So poor Abraham has to sit at the gate of hell and make sure nobody gets in who is circumcised. Not really. But you get the point. To be circumcised in their teaching was to be saved. It was to be justified. To be uncircumcised was to be unsaved. And that's why it became such an incendiary issue in the early church, in the nascent church days. Thankfully, God has given us this clear, chronological, historical illustration of justification by faith in Abraham's life. Abraham was justified by faith while he was uncircumcised, while he was still technically a Gentile. 
And he was saved, he was declared righteous for 14 years before he was ever circed, which means he got circumcised at age 99, and I don't even want to go there this morning. That just sounds painful. But verses 11 through 12, it also makes it unforgettable. But verses 11 through 12 drive the point home for us, our last few couple of verses here. He said, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith with which he had whilst uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, all who believe, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also uh, who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while he was uncircumcised. See, Paul kind of gives us a mouthful there. But uh, instead of circumcision, he says, being a work unto salvation, he says it is two different things. Number one, it's a sign. Number two, it's a seal. It's a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. In other words, it was the outward evidence of the righteousness of faith, but not the basis or cause of it. It's outward evidence. Circumcision as a sign, think about that. A sign points to something more important than itself, right? When you've been on a long journey and you finally see that sign that says, Shadron City Limits, you don't pull over, get out of your car and hug the sign, do you? I hope not, but... You don't get out and hug the sign and say, I'm home. The sign points to a greater reality of the city where your home is. The, the wedding ring is another sign. A wedding ring lets everybody know that you're married. Now, just because you take your ring off, your wedding ring off, maybe for work or to have it cleaned, doesn't mean you cease to be married, right? You don't become unmarried the moment you take your ring off. You're not married because you wear a ring. You wear a ring because you are already married, because of the reality that you're married. And so that's the same way with circumcision. With or without circumcision, a person can be a believer and be saved. And Paul hammers that home in in Galatians. But uh, he also does a little bit here in Romans. Circumcision is also said to be a seal. Think about it as a seal. A seal in Paul's day functioned uh, about the same way they do today. They carry a sense of authority and belonging and security, confirming something to be true. You might seal, you've seen documents sealed with uh, wax maybe in a signet ring. Well, that communicates that that document has authority and authenticity behind it. Your passport has a seal in it. It lets other countries know that you are in fact a citizen of the United States. It comes with authority, authenticity. Paul grew up in Tarsus. They sold timber and wool. Seals were used on products. We see seals on products today, don't we? Sheep, livestock were sealed by being branded. And it just was a permanent marking showing them who the owner was. That's what circumcision was. And what we could say about circumcision, we could also say about baptism. Baptism is a tangible way that Christians are marked as the people of God. It's a sign that you have believed. Just like in Acts chapter 10, 
And yet, what some people, some churches have done is they've taken the sign of baptism and they've fallen in love with the sign and they've forgotten the reality that the sign points to, which is that you have been died and resurrected with Christ. You have the Spirit. Sadly, many people are trusting in their, their sign, in the sign, maybe their baby baptism or adult baptism and They're not trusting in the Savior. And they're making Christ of no benefit to them. So this is what Paul says in Galatians. He says, if you go to get baptized in order to be saved, you might as well make, it's making, you're making Christ of no use to you. It's pointless. Why even do it in the first place? That's the same thing with circumcision, he said. It's a no benefit to you. It's to obey the teachings and commandments of men while your heart remains far from God because you've actually embraced works and not faith. Paul says it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. It doesn't matter if you're baptized or not. I can say that. He said, Christ did not send me to baptize. Don't you think if salvation required baptism, he would have been baptizing everybody as fast as he could? Christ did not send me to baptize. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. What matters is that you are a new creation, born again of the Holy Spirit through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so no one can boast. So Abraham becomes a paradigm for everyone ever saved by faith. And that's the only way we're saved, right? It's always been and only can be by faith apart from works Works have no place in justification. Works play zero part in your justification. Zip, zero, nada. Works play no part in your justification. You have to rely, trust in, have your faith in completely what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. It's the only way to be saved. So I encourage you to trust in Christ as your Savior today. And follow in the steps of Abraham, the father of us all. He unites all believers from all times. He blazed a trail of faith, and like an old cattle trail, we follow it. So let's keep trusting in in Christ and what he did for us. Amen? Lord, thank you so much for Romans chapter 4. We spent a lot of time in it today. I know this is one of the most important chapters regarding this most important doctrine of justification. And I pray that as we come away from this 
this time in your word, some of us would be coming away from here, Lord, changed forever. Having been justified, having trusted in Christ alone for the first time ever. And Lord, thank you just for those of us who already have been justified. We remind ourselves of how incredible your grace really is. Continue to root us in the gospel through this wonderful epistle that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.